Hello and welcome to Oh God What Now, I'm Dorian Linsky. If you joined us for last Friday's live stream, you'll know our initial reactions to the election results, but Labour have done their best to keep things interesting since then. <laughs> Feeding us exciting new material because they care so much about podcasting. Um, Roz Taylor is editor of the LSE's COVID-19 blog. Hi, Roz. Hello. So in Scotland, the SNP are just one seat short of majority and have a pro-independence majority in Holyrood, thanks to the Greens. Do you think the British government will be able to resist pressure for another referendum during the lifetime of this parliament? Because the the mandate appears to be there. It depends on the lifetime of this parliament, partly, because this parliament, as we've learned with the changes to the fixed-term parliament, Mm. or about abolishing the fixed-term parliament act, could it could be only another two years. But what we saw in a Sky poll last week is that around half of Scots want independence, but importantly, not all of those want it now. 42% want a referendum within five years. And of those people, 14% want it in two to five years time and 28% uh, within two years. So there's not an overwhelming sense of urgency. And I think that's to do with COVID and Brexit leaving people mm, mm. feeling it's it's time for a break from big political change. We're all a bit exhausted. Also, the Scottish Greens, who, of course, are you know now contributing to the majority for a referendum, they don't want a referendum in the next two years. And that's important, too. So will there be flashpoints in the next two years? And will there be things that make more Scots feel this is untenable? We must get out of the union. And I don't see those things yet. But if Sturgeon were to make it clear she wanted to do something bold and radical and attractive that isn't possible at the moment, there might be. Um, And Tuesday saw the first Queen's speech in Parliament since the pandemic began. When the big stories are, as you said, the abolition of the Fixed Term Parliaments Act, the introduction of voter ID and protections for free speech in universities, is this a government with a real vision for the country or just a vision for its own power and pet obsessions? Hmm. Well, I mean, it's extraordinary, isn't it? I mean, you have a country that's just been through what we've been through, and it's crying out for change in all kinds of areas, (laughs) where some university students have lost half the in-person teaching for their whole degree now, and you decide instead to make it harder, not easier for universities to invite controversial speakers to events. It's going to make it harder because the university will be liable for for all kinds of uh, how to compensate them if they then don't host them. It's almost as if this government is actually afraid of the task ahead of it and is locking in its power because they know the vaccine bounce can't last. And there's also an element of the conjuring trick at the moment because you're giving social freedoms back with one hand and you're taking away civil liberties with the other. It's very sly. It's very clever. It's very frightening. Ian Dunt is editor-at-large at politics.co.uk. Hello, Ian. Hello. Will Davis, a former Bunker Daily guest, very good commentator, points out that 0.09% of uh, speakers at universities faced a problem with no platforming and 0.00005% of votes at the last general election were fraudulent. Is there any evidence at all that voter ID is necessary and not an attempt to, I suppose, suppress uh, the kind of voters that, that that annoy the government by voting Labour. No, 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 no. There isn't. No, there isn't. So, I mean, in two thousand and eighteen, there was council elections, um, and it accounted for three percent of alleged electoral sort of offences, which adds up to eight cases. Um, seven of those resulted in no action, and one of them was resolved locally. So, then go forward to twenty nineteen. You got the general election. 
32 million votes counted in that period. Not a single fucking case of in-person voter fraud. The European elections, you might remember, was the same year. I mean, I don't know if everyone's just so traumatized by the recent events of our lives, but the, the elections were that year. And there were two. There was a bloke who voted for himself and, and his son. Um, and there was another one who gave his father's name. Uh, so the first bloke was fined and he was banned from voting for five years. And the second was given a police caution. So... You know, it's you know to, to look at that situation and go, oh, we've got this terrible problem with with in-person voter fraud that we really need to address. Um, takes uh, quite a lot of imagination. But the thing is, across that Queen's speech, across all those bills, mostly they deal with problems that don't exist. Like it's the same thing for the for the fucking fixed terms Parliament Act, right? I mean, I don't know if anyone remembers, but there was an election in 2017, and there was another one in 2019. Now, neither of those things should have been possible under the fixed terms parliament that, but they were because ultimately you're never really going to be in a situation where the opposition party fights you too much on this stuff. The same, if you look at the policing bill, which is being carried through, you know, there is no problem with noisy protests. Protests are noisy and people get that. When the government had to defend it in parliament, what they said was, oh, well, you know, we've, we've got to deal with Extinction Rebellion, shutting down printing presses and trains. You think, well, that's not what this fucking bill does. This bill says they're not able to make any noise. And you see the same with judicial review. They're trying to reform judicial review. They put a, a panel that they fucking picked the members of in a desperate bid to get them to say, oh, the, the, the judges are overgoing their constitutional bounds again. And in fact, the panel said exactly the opposite. When there, there really is no substantial problem here at all. And they're going to go for judicial review anyway for reform of it. So in each case, the problem doesn't exist because... We're too used to thinking that the problem the government is trying to fix is a problem that exists in the actual objective world, but it doesn't. The problem that they want to fix is that young people and ethnic minorities don't vote for the conservatives. So they're going to try and dissuade them from being able to vote in the first place. It's the protesters exist and the Black Lives Matter under Extinction Rebellion, and they want to shut them the fuck up. It's that judicial review, and in particular, the instances in the Supreme Court that have ruled against the government, is a threat to executive power, so they want to close them down. And the Fixed Terms Parliament Act offered just a fucking smidgen of power to Parliament over what the government does, so they want to clamp that down. That's the fucking problem, is that they don't feel that they have all the power in the world yet, and that's really the problem that those bills are intended to address. Yeah, it's, it's, it is a shame that, 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 that Boris Johnson is uh, authoritarian on matters such as this, but libertarian when it comes to pandemics. Like, yeah, one, yes, one would shame, want that situation it? reversed. <laughs> <laughs> Later on the podcast, we'll be talking to Jonathan Calvert and Georgia Buthnot of the Sunday Times Insight team about their eye-popping book, Failures of State, The Inside Story of Britain's Battle with Coronavirus, what really went on behind the scenes of the pandemic, and who's to blame? Boris Johnson. But first... <laughs> <laughs> we will be looking at some of the consequences of last week's elections and Labour's messy reshuffle. And in the extended extra bit for Patreon backers, we'll be finding some reasons to be cheerful from the elections and their aftermath because we care about you. Remember, you can get the full length extended director's cut of Oh God, What Now? a whole day early and without ads when you support us on Patreon. Just search Patreon Oh God, What Now? podcast. You'll also get exclusive video and audio of last Friday's Hot Takes Live Zoom and access to our future live streams too. So the dominoes continued to fall after last week's elections, raising existential questions about the future of the Labour Party, again, and the whole idea of opposition to <laughs> Boris Johnson. Ian, to start with the messy drama, Labour managed to cleverly shove good news from Wales and the mayoral elections out of the headlines with a chaotic reshuffle 
which began with the uh, Schrodinger's sacking slash promotion of Angela Rayner and ended with Keir Starmer's approval rating at a record low of minus 49. I basically watched that unfold uh, on, on Twitter through my fingers. What on earth happened there? What was what was what was going on around Angela Rayner? I am fascinated by the way that you think that there's any other way of using Twitter other than looking at it through your fingers. <laughs> um, I mean, he tried. It does feel like one of those instances of someone just not recognizing the extent of the vulnerability that they're currently experiencing and the lack of leverage they have. Because he could. He clearly thought, like, you know, I'm going to take the tough guy approach here and really shake things up. But he was doing it against someone who wasn't responsible for what took place, um, who actually has has a mandate, their own individual mandate from the main, from the membership. And in a manner that really did seem to unite everyone against him. I mean, you may have seen, you know, when you were looking at Twitter through your fingers, it wasn't like it was just the Corbyn guys that were pissed off about this. It wasn't even like it, or the, or the mm. right or the, or the soft left as well. I mean, basically, it was pretty universal. And you can see how it went. By virtue of the fact that I have never heard so much from Angela Rayner in my fucking life. Since that happened, I've seen like three interviews with her. She's all over every fucking press release they send out. I'm just like, I haven't heard a single thing from Keir Starmer. I'm like, wait a minute. Does she fucking take the leadership during that little messy kerfuffle they had? Because that's basically the way that it feels right now. I mean, seriously, it feels right now almost like the sort of, Biden Harris, you know, like you almost want to mention their names at the same time as if the party has two leaders. Well, not so long ago, they were walking down a street in Manchester talking about who's best, Oasis or the Stone Roses. I thought they got on. I thought it was a good sort of, you know, balanced ticket. Was he trying to scapegoat her? Is he worried that she's too popular or powerful? Well, it's sensibly a sort of long simmering briefing war between the two that seems to have boiled over. Uh, with accusations, people putting stuff around her personal life into the press and just this really dreary, tiresome stuff doesn't really seem to have any political content to it whatsoever. It doesn't, I mean, so there is no really substantial political angle to what we've seen so far. I mean, she's marginally more to the left than he is. Although I, I increasingly find it quite hard to say oh, this is, I mean, I think probably indicative of, of a series of problems, exactly really what Starmer's politics are. I mean, just how far to the left he is, or the centre. I mean, he, he's... A, you listen to Corbyn guys and they're like, he's the right of the party. I mean, he obviously isn't the right of the party. I mean, this is a guy who is, you know, clearly to the left of Tony Blair, but it's just not really clear, especially on economic stuff, what his position is. Um, Ross, let's talk about some of those results that got overshadowed by the nonsense. Um, Mark Drakeford tr- triumphed in Wales, just one seat of Labour's first ever majority in the Senate, as I now know it is pronounced, um, <laughs> while former Plaid leader, again, a learning curve, um, Leanne Wood lost her seat. Um, Drakeford's hardly a, a charisma machine, with respect. So what does he have that, that Starmer doesn't? Is it just the Welsh? Or is there something else? Well, Drakeford has been in charge of something, which Starmer is not, apart from the implosion of his own party. But he's been, he's been actually making decisions about lockdowns. It doesn't you know, it doesn't seem to matter in this pandemic which decisions you are making or whether they're any good. It's just that you're on TV <laughs> all the time making them. I mean, you'll recall Wales had a circuit breaker last autumn, which Starmer mm. was also calling for. Didn't really work, actually. I don't think a circuit breaker, it was just too short at that point in the pandemic with infections so high. But it made Drakeford look decisive. And you have to wonder at this point whether Starmer's tactic of constructive opposition was a mistake, is a mistake, or whether you actually only reap the benefits of standing up noisily to Westminster 
if you mm. have local powers to deploy. And he was always bound to fail to cut through because he was so powerless and had so little exposure. And Labour won mayoral elections in London, Greater Manchester, Bristol, Cambridgeshire, West Yorkshire, but failed uh, to unseat the Tories in the West Midlands and Tees Valley. Looking at the sort of pattern here, do you think these are local stories more than national ones? You know, it's it's the candidate. It's not always the incumbent uh, that won here, but, you know, that it's the candidate, not the party. And, the, and is there anything that the kind of national party can pull from the success of people like Sadiq Khan and, and Andy Burnham? It's difficult because during the pandemic, we've had a lot of time to look around the places we live, many of us. I mean, spend time in places like local parks and playgrounds that maybe we didn't go to so much before because we didn't have the time and we had other things to do. People on furlough and forced to exercise locally, you know, have been out and about a lot more looking around their neighbourhoods and thinking about what's good and bad about them. And places have effectively been pitted against each other with the tier system as well. And we shouldn't underestimate the effect that has had. And then locally, you've got places like Cambridge and Bristol, which are becoming more Labour and becoming more green, partly because the Lib Dems are such a feeble, feeble force at the moment, and partly because they have younger populations who are less receptive to Johnson's brand of populism. But I mean, you look at Andy Burnham, especially, who's done very well, exceptionally well in the elections, in harnessing a sense of resentment against London, which is the flip side, actually. I mean, some would say it's the healthier side, but it is the flip side of the anti-Southeast, anti-liberal elite feelings that the Tories have already been nurturing. And you should note that Johnson has noticed that and is again banging on about levelling up, not needing to leave your town to get a skilled job, this kind of thing. The question, the really difficult thing is how much metro mayors and local councils can actually do locally when they're so hamstrung financially. Are they basically going to be dependent on Whitehall sending them free ports and outposts of the Treasury and new infrastructure and stuff like that? Are they actually going to have the powers to change their neighbourhoods if they're not members of the party in power? Because the Conservatives have already shown that they want to reward Tory voting towns at the expense of other ones. Is that going to continue? Will they realise? It looks great, these local wins, but I worry about how much non-conservative parties will be able to do on the on the ground and final bit of good news labor made local council gains um in some surprising places like chipping norton uh, david cameron's backyard and parts of kent do you think sort of pundits and indeed labor itself are they paying enough attention to, to labor's advances or just dwelling on its losses labor is kind of in mourning at the moment I mean, the problem for Labour is that these gains have not been where they want them and where they really care about them. Their grip on people who used to be called C2DEs, basically, it's weakening. It's nearly gone. It's a, As a party, they don't want to know what to do about that because the Labour Party has always thought of itself as a champion of the workers and the underdog. They tolerated people like Peter Mandelson, who's popped up again this week. They didn't love them. They never loved them. It's an existential crisis for Labour when these put people put their faith in Johnson. And that is the fundamental thing of what the Labour Party is currently trying to get tongue to terms with. These people don't like them. They don't love them anymore. But they're the whole raison d'etre of the Labour Party. So what do they do now? Yeah, I can't he... believe Roz just used a French accent for saying <laughs> that was shocking. A shocking moment in this podcast. Very Romani. <laughs> Sorry, guys. I only have a master's in French literature. I can't help it. <laughs> How will that go down well in Hartlepool? Not very well. But 
Ian, I got the feeling here that, that you know, that lots of the Leave Remain divide was turning the Tory Labour divide, and that there was a sort of long-term realignment, which meant that, you know, that, that when people talk about, oh, the heartlands and the base, that, that actually we should sort of start rethinking what, where those places really are. Now, obviously, there's a there's a pragmatic reason why Labour is obsessed with the Red Wall, because it needs some of those seats to win back some of those seats to win a majority. Um, but as Ros suggested, is it even more than that about the party sense of itself? It's, it's almost shameful if you're losing seats in the post-industrial north while winning sort of people who have left London and now living in the in the commuter belt, that those those voters aren't really the kind of um, the ones you're proud of. Yeah, it's a mix, right? Because you've got the practical part. As you said, although it's actually worse than you said, it's not like you need the Red Wall to win a majority. You need at least some of the Red Wall just to get Johnson out of power, to get a hung parliament. You you, you can't, you know, it's it's really severe. And and there's there's this bit of a latent sort of liberal thing at the moment of, well, maybe just fuck them because we can nearly win Worthing. So now let's just, you know, go pile into the southeast. And it's just like, no, no, we're not there, not demographically, not electorally, that, that there is no clear pathway in that direction. You do have to pay back some of the red wall. But then it's not just the practical. You're, you're right, there's this sort of, it's like Ros was saying, it's like their soul. And part of that comes down to these kind of now fairly archaic ideas around what class is. Even someone that owns a home in a place like Hartlepool is more working class than a graduate who, you know, is getting paid very, very badly in a gig economy and has no sense of security around their rent or around their work. It's a sort of dated view of class because it doesn't actually, there's people here that are really fucking struggling and they don't struggle any less by virtue of the fact that they went to fucking university. You know, something quite fucked this week has happened where both the conservatives and parts of Labour are talking as if, it's a bad thing to be a graduate. Like, I don't know when the fuck we got to a point as a country where saying that someone is a graduate is like some kind of smear. It's like, oh, well, you tried to improve yourself and learn about the world. Like, you you, you metropolitan fool. I, I, I find that completely bizarre. And I think that, that there's something about that that's sort of rumbling around in Labour's belly at the moment. Yeah, there's a, the, I mean, the whole, the whole tone of, of, of sort of punditry is just like, you, you know, that you're only re- you're only a real person if you live in one of these you know post-industrial seats. Like I said, even if you sort of own your own home or whatever, you're retired. You're a working person even if you're retired. Um, <laughs> as as long as you're not one of these sort of book reading tossers <laughs> <laughs> who, who lives in who lives in a city which is both sort of full of other book reading tossers, but also a knife wielding hellhole. Yes, yeah. Some incredible mixture of avocado, <laughs> cappuccino, and knives. That's basically <laughs> the Yeah, it's like a, a post-apocalyptic dystopia with, with uh, a very expensive coffee. <laughs> Are you willing to chance a prediction on the by-election in Batley and Spen? It's Joe Cox's old seat. It's current MP, Tracy Brabin, has just become West Yorkshire mayor, opening up that. Uh, the by-election is sort of not not yet pinned down, but kind of expected in July. Can Labour stop that becoming Hartlepool Part Two? Are the, are the circumstances different in that? Because it's just they're really different. Um, and I don't know about a prediction. I mean, there, there, there's a lot that we don't know yet, including who the candidate's going to be. Although, as, as we've been recording, Kim Leadbeater, fantastic name. It just sounds like one of the sort of '90s uh, superhero. This kind of Rob Leefield character. That's a 
reference that is going to make sense to about three people listening to this podcast. So I apologize for making it. No, I don't. I fucking apologize for nothing. Um, so she is throwing her hat in the ring. She's Joe Cox's sister. I think, you know, when you looked at the way that some of the people around Labour were chatting, uh, you know, sort of around the unions and stuff, I mean, I thought they basically thought if she threw her hat in the ring, they weren't going to go for it. There's, the, the assumption is that would be a clear path for her to just be the candidate. And I think that she would have a better chance than most. It's also not a seat the same as, as Hartlepool. I mean, it's for a start, it's been Tory relatively recently. It went Labour in 97. It's got about the same sort of uh, majority for Labour. It's about sort of three and a half thousand. It's demographically a bit different. Um, it's quite a large sort of Asian population there. There's a lot of deprivation. The income is below the national average. There's quite a, a large section of the public there are out of work. So it's still dangerous ground, but it is more when it's a, you know, it's a better test for what's going on with someone's leadership than Hartlepool is. Because, you know, Hartlepool, you could make that case that it was essentially, you know, notwithstanding the reality of it, it was essentially a Tory gain in 2019. Labour's to go back. That's not the case here. So I wouldn't make a prediction, but I would say if Labour don't win it, that's a more damning indictment of where they are at the leadership than Hartlepool is. Uh, and so I met Kim and, and heard her talk at, at Joe Cox's memorial service in, in Cambridge, and I thought she was quite extraordinary. Um, oh, really? I'd say it wouldn't, uh-huh. it wouldn't surprise me if she if she took a sort of political route. And I do think, of course, that one of the things about Hartlepool was there was some debate about whether the candidate was just um, the wrong choice and chosen indeed in the wrong way. And I think that if there's a really strong candidate, whether it's, it's Kim or somebody else, you know, that, that could make a really big difference. Roz, finally, someone compared media coverage of the London mayoral election to the results, found that Lawrence Fox predictably got the fewest votes per article, while Sean Berry, who came third ahead of the Lib Dem Louisa Porritt, got relatively little attention. Um, so if you're looking at, at her performance and green gains elsewhere, they now control Bristol Council, is it time for journalists uh, and all of us, you know, to take the party more seriously? Yeah, of course, they need to start scrutinising the Greens. I mean, they won 12% of the London Assembly vote too, which is better than the Lib Dems often do. Part of the problem has been the sheer number of what you could kindly call novelty candidates this time in London, and the fact that any of them who wanted it got a full page in the voting booklet to set out what in most cases was asinine nonsense. You know, (laughs) Sadiq Khan and Sean Bailey and Sean Berry got the same space as Piers Corbyn and, you know, and, and Lawrence Fox and other, frankly, nutters. I'm sorry, guys, but you are. And the mayoral debates, such as they were, got zero attention, partly because of the whole social distancing requirements and so on. We need to start being identified, ignore, be able to identify and ignore these attention seekers and, and not kind of, I'm sorry, but not give equal attention to every minor mayoral candidate. And we don't seem very good at that as a society at the moment. And I mean, also, I mean, I felt this for years is that the Greens, you know, a lot of the positions don't get sort of scrutiny. I've certainly I have voted for for the Greens in the past as a sort of as a protest. I'm fed up with with Labour, but without necessarily digging that deep into the policies. And, 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 um, And of course, you know, they deserve more coverage. They also deserve more scrutiny. Do you think that their performance this time is largely down to sort of the disgruntled sort of anti-Starmer left abandoning Labour? Or is their appeal broader than that and they're actually picking up people from all over? Yeah, I think they are. There's a big crossover between Lib Dem support as well and the Greens, as well as Labour. And there's an appetite at the moment for radical, 
expensive solutions to big problems, which is fundamentally what the government's response to the coronavirus was. There's a feeling that that kind of thing is possible and big change is possible if you invest enough money and will in it. And naturally, that is going to benefit the Greens. Does what's going on in the American election scare and bemuse you in equal measure? Want to know what Biden and Trump are up to without tearing your hair out? Then you need to listen to American Friction, the brand new podcast about the countdown to the big vote in November from the makers of Oh God, What Now?, The Bunker and Paper Cuts. Every Friday, we'll speak to leading experts and blockbuster commentators from the United States to explain the latest news and the big issues behind the vote. That's American Friction with me, Jacob Jarvis. Me, Chris Jones. And me, Nikki McCann Ramirez. Out every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Our guests this week are Jonathan Calvert and Georgia Buthnot, editor and deputy editor of the Sunday Times Insight team and co-authors of Failures of State, the inside story of Britain's battle with coronavirus, which is a rigorous account of the mistakes which led to the highest COVID-19 death toll in Europe. According to one Department of Health insider they spoke to, we were doomed by our incompetence, hubris and austerity. Last April, Jonathan and George accused Boris Johnson of sleepwalking into disaster in a blockbuster story that became the biggest in the history of the Times website and sparked an angry rebuttal from the government, which they then proceeded to rebut. I don't know if the rebuttals continued after that. Between them, they've won pretty much every journalism war going, and now they're on, oh God, what now? So will the honours never cease? Jonathan and George, thanks for joining us. Hello. Thanks for joining us. So Jonathan, the Insight team was set up in 1963, and it's sort of famous over the years for these world-changing scoops, like the the Lidomide, Soviet spies, FIFA corruption, and, and much more. And it's sort of become this quite unique institution in British journalism. Can you briefly explain, you know, how how it operates? Well, I mean, it's changed over the years because, I mean, back in those days when, you know, kind of we were doing thalidomide and things like that, I wasn't there, obviously. I'm not quite <laughs> that old. But <laughs> we used to have a kind of team of 17 or something uh, doing <laughs> working on stories. But in this era of um, computers, the Insight team is, is George and I. We, and we do call on other people to help us from time to time. And, you know, there's, you know there are often other contributors, either from outside the paper or inside the paper. And, we're, and our, our job is to is to work on longer term projects than the other people in the newsroom. We have time, more time and space to develop things, and we expected that at the end of that, they should be you know the work we do should be kind of in the public interest, and it should be significant, and and it should kind of break and make waves. And that's what we hopefully always aim to do. And it's an interesting and challenging job. Well, George, like I said, your your first uh, investigation in April was met with a blog from the government asserting factual inaccuracies, which the, you then challenged. Was that kind of pushback unusual, or are you used to inspiring angry blogs? Uh, we normally inspire uh, quite angry legal letters. Um, <laughs> so uh, a blog was quite mild, really. We'd ne- we'd, to be honest, we'd never had a blog from the government in that way, and one that was sort of tweeted out by... The entire cabinet, uh, so that was it was that was a kind of novelty, but it was quite extraordinary when, when we went through it. The sheer sort of uh, misleading nature of it was quite extraordinary. I think um, one of the academics they quoted in it in an attempt to to prove that they hadn't been warned about how serious the pandemic would be in January described it as, as Kremlin esque, 
Um, so which, which I think summed it up quite well. Well, you say in the book that on, on February the 6th last year, your editor came to you and said, coronavirus is the new Brexit. You knew how dangerous it was. So did many of the scientists that you talk about. I mean, I suppose this is the, the, the question of the, of the whole book. Why was the government so slow to take it seriously? Is it, is it, is it sort of lots and lots of different factors? Or is, is, is there one that sort of, do you think, explains this kind of weird heel dragging? Well, I think, I mean, we, we, we thought we had the kind of the best pan, pandemic planning in the world, didn't we? And we kind of, we were, we were quite relaxed about it. But the warnings were coming in in January after people had seen what had happened in, in Wuhan. And I, um, we had a government who were kind of completely distracted by the debate that had raged through, you know, kind of three years or so over Brexit, and finally there'd been the election, and, and finally Brexit was going to going to be delivered, and and that was that was the focus of the government, and they'd completely taken up their eye off the ball of a, a possible pandemic, which was listed as the um, number one threat to national security, but. I, we also, I think, would say that you know part of the problem was was down to the personality of the, the prime minister. He's he was a person who um, who just doesn't believe in the kind of um, and he said it on in a speech at the beginning of February. He re- described the pandemic as as an irrational panic. Uh, over over it, he didn't believe it was a real threat. In fact, I mean, he's previously talked about um, his hero being the mayor in in the film Jaws, who leaves all the beaches open so the sharks can eat eat all the tourists, because that's kind of that's the the right libertarian thing to do to help businesses, etc. We had a prime minister, as we wrote at the wrote in the first article, he'd missed all the key. Meetings of COBRA, the uh, the key national security uh, committee for disasters, and nobody was all. I mean, you know, given given you know the st- poor state of our pandemic planning, as it turned out, with you know, without we had sufficient supplies of PPE, etc. We had no testing capacity to be able to test for this virus. We should have hit the ground running in in January, but we didn't really seem to wake up to it until March. And there had been training exercises for a pandemic over the years. But can we blame austerity for the lack of preparedness, that they just didn't put enough money into it? Certainly that's the case in terms of the stockpiles of PPE equipment. Because I think some some of our other colleagues in the media does some some excellent um, investigative work um, discovering the the value of the stockpile had, had diminished massively uh, since since the beginning of the decade. Certainly, um, after Operation Exercise Cygnus, which was the last major pandemic exercise practice exercise that Britain had carried out in 2016, which had highlighted serious problems, um, particularly with, with PPE and ventilators, etc. In the years up to, up up to the beginning of the pandemic, it does seem that the, 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 the urgent preparations for a No Deal Brexit had taken precedent. And we spoke to emergency planners who just found it so frustrating because they, they had scheduled meetings in the diary to review the pandemic preparations and, and they kept just getting bumped uh, for the no-deal Brexit planning. Certainly, they, when they spoke to people within the NHS, they, they described that their kind of sweatiest nightmare was a pandemic because they realised that we were increasingly becoming very unprepared for one. 
The book reminded me, actually, that, that, that people like Patrick Valance and Chris Whitty were initially wrong about the efficacy of face masks, of banning mass gatherings, of the public stamina for a lockdown, or Public Health England was, was complacent about care homes. Could the government claim that it, you know, it was following the science, but the scientists were giving them bad information? I think there is a certain amount of truth at the beginning that, um, and, and, and I think especially true of the fact that they were they were following a kind of influenza uh, policy, which led them to believe initially they called it mitigate, but um, in effect, in it, it was it was herd immunity is what they were going for. They they believed actually that that there needed to be a certain amount of infections because otherwise there would be it would be disastrous later in the year if nobody had uh, immunity, and I don't think that. It's true that the government would, were doing that, and the scientists seem to seem to be roughly on side. But I think where the crux of it came was that when it came came to the middle of March, I think everyone suddenly, all the scientists suddenly realised there really was only one option, which was to lock down. And and a decision seemed to have been taken, but then the prime minister dithered and delayed. For another kind of ten days or so, um, nine or ten days, and in that time, you can see it from the back modelling, because the, the the virus was spreading; it was doubling every three days. It it actually went up from something like two hundred thousand on the weekend. They took the decision to around about one point five million cases of infection in the in the UK, and those those crucial last day, you know, when everybody else was locking down and we were late to lockdown by comparison. It's crucial uh, last days are one of the reasons why we suffered the highest death rate in the first wave. And also our economy was hit higher than anyone else's. So even after the the, the herd immunity, you know, sort of debate was settled, there was still that that delay. And and Dominic Cummings turned against it and denies ever supporting it. Would you is is, is that credible that that the sort of his his sort of hands are clean on that? As we understand it, he was quite open to the herd immunity idea through the kind of back end of February. But by early March, he had recognised the folly of, of that approach. You know, he sent one of his underlings in, into the SAGE meetings uh, to crunch the data and, and they they realised that they would they would never reach herd immunity in, without massively overwhelming the NHS. So he, he recognised that there needed to be a lockdown. And, and But Boris was just absolutely resistant resistant to it and mm. so yeah, you, you can kind of blame the scientists probably up to about the 14th of march but then those last nine days i think is, is, is are on boris johnson and obviously with when you those are the what that extra 1.3 million infections that are estimated to have spread in those last nine days are on him which is obviously the vast majority of the um of, of what led to all those deaths and one thing which I think some readers might be a bit a bit shocked by is because I think NHS workers have overall been the heroes of the pandemic, is this sort of some often sort of fatal decisions to ration intensive care and to have a sort of you know a checklist of factors which made you made you sort of worthy of the ICU, which meant sometimes that kind of that, that beds were actually staying empty um, because you know sort of elderly frail elderly patients hadn't met these um, criteria. Would you go so far as to say, as and, and that was a story that, that, that did, did not sort of, you know, come out at the, at the time. Would you say that that was sort of deliberately covered up? 
perhaps because it would just be sort of too damaging if it makes you know to sort of bring to the fore this sort of the, those failures in the NHS. Yeah, I don't. I think generally, I think the, the, the most the hospitals wouldn't want people to to think that uh, such decisions on life and death were were um, were put in the hands of doctors. But in fact, they were having to take those decisions because you know the first wave did fill the hospitals, and they were worried that there were going to be more and more coming, and so that. So I mean, we saw that documents were created, which were were sent round hospitals, and we talked to doctors who said that they used those documents um, in order to, in effect, I suppose, choose between patients, you know, those who were very elderly or had some other illness which might uh, make them more susceptible to the virus, uh, might not be given the same level of treatment, especially intensive care, as other patients. I mean, some people would just simply not not admitted to hospital i mean it has to, has to be mm. said as well and i think i think it, where this kind of is important is that Mac, matt Hon- hancock the health secretary says that everybody got the treatment that they needed which i just don't think is true at all this erroneous argument that, that emerged was it was important because because people would then say so for example all there were elements of, of the Prime Minister's own party who were driving him to open up everything much quicker. And they would say, well, look, you know, we, we coped during the pandemic. The NHS wasn't overrun as we'd over, as we'd feared. And that kind of, and by masking that reality, they made such arguments possible because, I mean, it, you know, the doctors we spoke to did talk about an absolutely awful situation where where things were overrun. And we would, and you can see it in the figures as well. I mean, the, the number of over 80-year-olds who went into intensive care at the beginning, before before the cases really got very high, was much higher than the, than the middle period where, where they were just finding it hard to cope. And then at the end, when all, at the end of the, the first wave, when everything kind of calmed down, the number of 80-year-olds would increase in intensive care. And, 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 and we also, you can also see that, that 80-year-olds do benefit from going into intensive care. There are figures that demonstrate that as well. So, mm. a, lot of, so a lot of people would not have been given the care that they, were, that they needed, and they could have survived if they had have been. So well, just to, just to add that, um, in terms of in terms of those statistics, I mean the hospitals were so overwhelmed that, that just one in nine people who died of the virus in that first wave received intensive care treatment, and of the forty seven thousand people who died of the virus inside and outside of hospitals, just just five thousand of those were, got into intensive care. Um, um, so it's absolutely crystal clear that. Thousands of people died without the care they needed, and it was an extraordinary lie from Matt Hancock to, to claim otherwise. And the government made sort of further errors, as you explain, um, first by opening up too suddenly in the summer, then delaying further lockdowns in autumn and winter. Now, despite knowing what happened in March, despite being able to see, you know, even if they'd only read your article from April, you know, the cost, the human cost of delaying lockdown, why did they keep making the same, pretty much the same mistake that they had made uh, in February and March? Well, it's a very good, it's a very good, good 
good question, and they didn't really need to read our article. I mean, uh, <laughs> when Boris Johnson came out of uh, out of was recu- recu- recuperating from his illness and came back in late April, he actually he actually um, made a speech in which he he said that allowing infections to grow again would lead to a human and economic disaster. And so, and basically, he, he committed to keeping the R below one because he understood the point that that actually, if you allowed infections to grow, it wouldn't just be that a lot of people would die. It would also have to have a longer lockdown to get infections down, and that would be, cause worse damage to to the economy. But he seems to have been kind of pushed around from all sides. And when it came to, when it came to July July the fourth, Independence Day or um, Super Saturday, as it became. Uh, against the advice of his own scientists, he decided to just kind of open everything up. And what's interesting about June, July the 4th is it's the, the one day uh, where the number of cases got down to 600, which was the lowest it got in the first wave. And and on the very day that we opened everything up, the number of cases started to grow again after going down all the way until July the 4th, they started going up again. By August, uh, we were seeing huge rises in cases. And, and by sem- September, the, the situation was becoming really, really serious. And what seems, the, 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 I mean, it wasn't helped either by the Eat Out to Help Out scheme, which the Chancellor was was pushing very hard, which kind of, um, which we've seen studies, um, which suggest caused a lot of extra infections. And then it came when it came to came to September. These scientists, you know, kind of Gove, Hancock, Cummings, were all saying to Boris, "You've got to now uh, bring in a short lockdown just to nip this in the bud, and and otherwise it could be disastrous." And there was a crucial weekend in September in which Boris seems to have been persuaded by Gove and Hancock that that, that a circuit breaker was needed. And he then has a conversation with Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, and he seems to change his mind. And that weekend, they they bring in you know the uh, the scientists who who are not you know they've not you know sage. They've got about fifty scientists. They've got loads of them, but they don't bring those in. They bring three others in who who are all who have all been espousing a, a kind of herd immunity style approach in which we kind of take it on the chin, as Boris had said once. And Boris changed his mind and decided that he believed that keeping he wanted to keep everywhere open, I think in the belief that somehow this would, would help the, the economy. But, but the problem problem with then allowing it allowing the, the virus to spread so much is that the case has built so, so much through late September, October, that there had to be a lockdown in November because it was just out of control, and that had to be a longer lockdown. And we ended up, you know, being in lockdown almost all, all of winter, really, which caused even greater damage to the economy. So it's and more people died, and so we had the worst of all worlds. Um, and it's you know it's it's important work this, and I think I suppose there's a certain sort of cognitive dissonance that I, I found that you're finishing the book is that just a few months ago, you had over 80% of voters disapproving of the government's handling of the pandemic. You've got one lawyer telling you Johnson could be charged with gross negligence, manslaughter, you've, you've sort of, um, you know, pointed out sort of Sunak's culpability. Sunak remains popular. Johnson's pretty popular. We've just seen the Conservatives do very well in the local elections and the Hartlepool by-election. Why do you think that it seemed to be relatively 
unscathed by by revelations of of a of an incompetence which you know has obviously killed a great number of people is it just do you think that is just that the vaccine wipes people's memories i think i think partly obviously yeah the people are really just relieved to get the vaccine and, and, and have a sense that we're kind of there's a light at the, at the, at the end of the tunnel and uh, but i think also i think the media to some extent you know is to blame i think the problem with the kind of 24-hour media is that you you kind of report things from day to day but it's it's, it's it's increasingly unusual that people are kind of given the time to look back and try and understand why you know the bigger picture of things and um that's not you know that's not reporters fault it's just the fact that you know, there isn't as much funding in journalism as there, as there used to be, and people don't get get the time to do it. And we're we're quite we're very lucky in, in in that sense. But I just I just don't think it's it's the the consequences and implications of Boris's three late lockdowns has been made clear to the public. I don't think the BBC have done it. I don't think you know, the, the big public broadcaster, and certainly many of the the, the mainstream media also also hasn't hasn't done it. And so. It's just it, it requires that kind of reporting for people to understand. Understand, otherwise, it's just seen as you know he did his best, and um, who are we to question it? I mean, it's all a difficult decision. But when you actually look at the detail, it's it's not it's not it wasn't actually a difficult decision. It was it was he was getting advised on it from every, every angle, particularly mm. that second wave, and and he was and he was ignoring it. And 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 sure enough, exactly uh, the warnings he received came to pass. And, you know, I remember when we, when we wrote the book, our, our editor asked when we got to that September decision not to bring in the circuit breaker lockdown. And our editor said, you know, can, can you just try and explain a bit more about why he didn't go for a circuit breaker lockdown? Because <laughs> he just couldn't, he couldn't comprehend how, how he hadn't taken that decision given everything else that, that he knew. And it, 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 it is quite hard to comprehend what, what, what he was thinking. Yeah, because, I mean, the scientists we talked to say that, you know, Maybe the first wave was forgivable, but the the second and third waves were absolutely unforgivable um, because the the message was absolutely clear what was needed to be done, and the prime minister didn't do it. And finally, I mean, we are, I suppose, at the beginning of this. This this is this this sort of book is, I suppose, one of the first attempt to sort of pull all this stuff together. There is going to be an inquiry, which uh, seems to be conveniently not going to report until. after the next election. But Valance says at one point that lessons have been learned for next time, certainly by, by the scientists. How confident are you that the response to the next pandemic, whenever it comes, will be significantly different? I think the scientists have clearly learned, learned, learned their lessons by that, by that second wave. And so that, that's certainly true. The chances of us having another pandemic where we have a prime minister in place who's Hero is the um, mayor from Jaws is is probably quite remote, and hopefully, you know things will be handled um, better in the future. But I think it was just extraordinarily bad luck that we had someone like Johnson in charge um, at at that critical moment, um, because he was psychologically um, opposed to taking the action that that was necessary. Well, thank you so much, Jonathan Calvert and George Arbuthnot. Thank you. Thank you so much. Failures of State is out now. And now it's time for a national institution which is almost as widely admired as the Sunday Times Insight team, but your emails. 
This week, Jan Kapinski asks, with the progressive vote split and right-wing vote consolidated, it's hard to imagine a scenario where the Tories are ousted. Rather than think of ways to consolidate the progressive vote, is there any hypothetical scenario you guys can think of that might split the right-wing vote in three to four years' time? Is there any splinter group waiting in the wings, or are we doomed because our wish to see the back of Farage came true? Roz, what do you think? Would you like Would you like Farage to come back and fuck things up on the right again? <laughs> no. No, I wouldn't, Dorian. <laughs> Um, I think Johnson himself, uh, the loss of Johnson would, I think, be the death knell for this this broad populist. I mean, Johnson, it's not, it is populism, but it's, it's also Johnson's whole personality. There is no one else, not even the Chancellor, who has who has the same appeal, broad appeal to people that Johnson does. If they lose him for whatever reason, I don't know what it could be, I think that will fall apart. Um, but you know that, that that that's not unfortunately a strategy that the left can uh, can look to uh, something that we can do anything about um yeah it's so ian for 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 decades really europe was the was the big problem for the tories and and creating kind of an appetite for ukip and briefly for the brexit party is there anything like europe that could kind of split off the right like that well for a start i mean i think it, it when we look at some of these seats in the southeast where the Tories are struggling, that's actually what you're seeing is, I mean, right, left, not the most useful categories, but you're seeing, you know, voters who, you know, would otherwise be fairly Tory, who are actually a bit aghast at the kind of language and the kind of messaging that they're hearing from the government. Then, you know, what are the issues, this is, and this is what it comes down to for Labour, I think, you know, what are the issues that you're going to fight the government on? At the moment, it looks like that Brexit remain divide. It looks like our worst nightmares are being realized, which is that that divide stays. We don't know that yet. It might change. It's really hard to make firm conclusions on the basis of these elections. But from these initial bits of data that we see, it looks like that divide is here to stay. And then I think that does create a change for Labour of saying, well, it's not so much about trying to hope the culture war goes away. Instead, it's how can we reformulate the questions that it asks? Like there, if you look across policies, you know that Joe Cox saying, you know, there's more, you know, more in common. Well, mm. actually, that, that's fucking true. There is more in common. Among these groups, the groups that are pitted against each other, you know, the Hartlepools and the grad and the latte-sipping graduate knife-wielders in, in London, there is more <laughs> that, that they have in common. When you look at their assessment of history, you will see, like, we have lots of data. There's just people from a range of different backgrounds, including white leave voters, think they should be teaching about, you know, colonialism and Britain's past, the good and the bad in mm. schools. When you look at something like cannabis legalization, you will see support from that across the political spectrum, not for other drugs, but you do for, for cannabis. If you look at something like paying more to the armed forces or, um, or, or social care, you will see support for that on both groups. So I think over and over, you'd see something similar for something like uh, bus nationalization, which, by the way, would be a much smarter thing to nationalize than rail. Like over and over, there are these issues where the Tory position is not necessarily popular and there is more in common between different cultural groups as we see them right now in this country. It's about having an opposition that can make those the wedge issues and use them against the government. So then the question is really pertinent because it's about, fine, so they have this election winning coalition right now. How can you split it? What are what is there that actually doesn't this completely fake cultural divide they've created? How can you find something that goes and cuts against the grain of the battle lines that they have drawn? And I think that's doable. Not only is it doable, but it's sort of the key pathway towards success in the next few years. I got very excited when you said bus nationalisation. Yes, 
<laughs> yes, Ian, that's the vision we need. Well, you live in a city with bus nationalisation, so that's sort of okay, right? <laughs> but I'm, you know, I'm thinking of, uh, I'm thinking of, uh, I'm thinking of everyone else. I'm thinking of Andy Burnham <laughs> on the buses. <laughs> no, it's true. You do go outside of London, and buses are crazy, crazy, crazy expensive. And yeah, I, I, insane. I think that because I read Tony Blair's uh, New Statesman essay about what what Labour needs to do to go forward, not backward, upward, not downward, and so on. <laughs> <laughs> And, and it's just a lot of like technology, man. It's wild, <laughs> but it, it felt a little bit vague. And I think I probably I was kind of looking for sort of something, just something that's really sort of solid and popular and would make a tangible difference to people's lives. And it's probably not as sexy as just like, you know, AI. Um, but bus nationalisation turns me on. <laughs> <laughs> and finally we found it after all these years dorian reveals his very strange policy kink uh thank you to our regulars ian oh thank you thanks and Roz. thank you and to our guests earlier jonathan calvert and george abuthnot this week on the extra bit for patreon backers as we get ready to swap being cold and drunk outside a pub for being warm and drunk inside a pub <laughs> we're picking some causes for optimism in the world of politics backers for as little as two pounds a month to hear the full episode you'll get a preview after our theme song demon is a monster by corner shop and a thanks to our latest backers <laughs> Hello, present your ID cards. Duncan Lovell, Oliver Dura, Ben Holmes, Stuart Sears and Oliver Burke. Hello and thanks from me to Hans Van Balen, Erin, Joseph Belosa, Lottie Croft and Scott Napier. And thanks from me to Nigel Beanland, Oliver, Eddie Cochran, Lisa Root and Graham Lincoln. We'll see you all next week. Oh God, what now? Was presented... By Dorian Linsky with Ross Taylor and Ian Dunt. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelna Sofrinievich. And audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Art direction by Mark Taylor. Oh God, what now? Is a Podmasters production. Welcome to The Extra Bit, exclusively for Patreon backers. This week, after a bruising week, we're going to try and lift our heads and give you some reasons to be cheerful, a phrase that we invented. (laughs) (laughs) And not certain members of the Shadow Cabinet. Roz, what is your motivation to be optimistic? Well, I'm excited about lockdown lifting because it's not just because of pubs and stuff reopening. Obviously, that's nice. Because lockdown doesn't just kill socialising, it kills politics, basically. We were already moving towards a very WhatsAppified way of political organising. And now we have a situation where, for example, whips are casting most parliamentary votes on MPs' behalf because of the way Parliament is set up, social distancing at the moment. New political movements and activism, uh, they need people arguing with each other and talking to each other and demonstrating and rallying and going to wonky meetings and party conferences. And none of that has been happening during the pandemic. And this matters much more for the left than it does for the right, because for the left, it's about change rather than preserving the status quo. So I don't know what's going to emerge from politics in real life as it gets going in the next few months, but I'm quite excited about what might come out of that. 
And that was a taster of the After Hours lock-in version of this week's podcast. If you'd like a little bit more Oh God, What Now every week, without ads and a day early, then sign up to back us on Patreon for as little as £2 a month. You'll be helping the podcast and we'll appreciate it enormously. Thanks for listening. Take care. See you next week.